in education is all about that. So do you want to wait 50 years and spend all this money or do you want to have a failed democracy? That's the choice I see. And that's why I keep doing this work, despite how challenging it sometimes feels. I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. It's been a long time since I was a teacher, but I'll tell you a story that relates a little bit to my work. Brian Greenberg is an educator, not a venture capitalist. Um, I had the luxury of helping start a school within a school in a big Los Angeles unified high school. But what he's doing in education is surprisingly similar to venture, handing out millions of dollars to start up schools with new ideas. So we built a small school, which was predominantly for very low-income families in and around a neighborhood in Los Angeles and for kids who were really talented. And we decided to start a school that would serve those kids. And I went from teaching every day with some kids who were motivated to some kids who weren't, which is very standard for a teacher, to this remarkably motivated group of kids. And instantly, I had to like up my game in really powerful ways. And so I just kept saying, you know, raise the bar, raise the bar, raise the bar, see if the kids can respond. And I think what we all learn when we teach is the more you raise the bar, generally, the more the kids respond. And then I had some teacher training I got sent away for two days to. And I said, these kids are really interesting. I'm going to give them this very open-ended challenge. And we were reading A Tale of Two Cities, you know, which is like not the easiest book to get through as high school And what, what level of kid are we talking here? You know, I mean, sophomores and juniors, sure. give or take. Yeah. Um, and I said to them, design a game to capture the spirit of, you know, the book. And you each get a quadrant of the wall. Basically, I cleared the wall. So I had five periods. They got five sections of the wall. And that was it. And I sort of trusted them and the sub to figure it out. I came back and they had worked so hard for like, I think they were coming in on lunch breaks and they were designing these incredible murals with like, some of them had like board games on the wall. Some had strategy. It exceeded my expectations by 10x. And it made me realize I'm the obstacle. I'm the barrier stopping them from finding what's possible. And that's even a teacher who had pretty high expectations. And it stuck with me because I don't think the current education system does a great job of finding what kids' ceilings are. We do a pretty good job of ensuring the floor, but not enough of the ceiling. And that's sort of motivating a lot of my work these days. And that's true for every kid. That's not just for gifted kids. It's just how often are kids truly engaged and motivated by what they do. 
Greenberg's aha moment in that classroom led him to a new career, a far, far better thing, the Silicon Valley Schools Fund investing millions in startup schools, the way that VC invests in startup entrepreneurs. People will often ask me, well, what do you get back? And I say, we get back educated kids and populists who go on to make society better, be taxpayers, be productively employed. Is that all? Exactly. That's (laughs) it. Just just a functioning democracy. That's all we get. Um, But we think very disciplinedly about how we give out the money. So every dollar the Silicon Schools Fund gives away, we have raised. And it's a small team. So I'm doing most of that myself. And we're speaking to, you know, really committed donors across America and saying, Instead of each of you trying to find the best way to donate and deploy your capital that you want to have a great outcome in the world, trust our team of experts to go do all that diligence and work for you. And we're rigorous. And we can talk a little bit about what our diligence process looks like because it's really interesting. And we're inspired by a lot of the work that venture capital does to also find the best investments. And then when we find them, we say to these entrepreneurs, you are in desperate need of flexible, patient, risk-tolerant capital to make your dream come true. We have that. We're in desperate need to like transform the country and find hardworking people who would do it. You have that. This is a match made in heaven. But let's not just give you a grant and say, good luck, we're proud of you. Let's set some goals together. And we set a series of metrics. And then we tranche out the funding, usually over a three to four-year period. And there's deliverables. And as long as they're hitting their deliverables, when we walk the schools and evaluate classrooms. They look like these dynamic places of learning. Um, The kids are performing, usually well above what the default school around them would be. And they've hit their enrollment targets and they're in good financial position. The checks keep coming and they get our full funding over a four-year period. The other interesting thing about the way we do our funding is we want these schools to break even eventually. We don't want them to be perpetually reliant on philanthropy. So we spend a lot of time looking at their financial models to help make sure that in years zero, one, and two, they're allowed to lose money because they don't have all the kids yet and they still have all the fixed costs of the administration and the building. But by year three or four, we want the state revenue to be balancing out against their expenses. And that's like a PL that balances. And then we can pull out, they can self-sustain into perpetuity, and we move on to the next school. And that model has been working for 10 years, but we've now launched 75 schools, and almost all of them are sort of on their path to sort of, you know, perpetual, strong quality schools. And most of these are charter schools, right? It's a mix. We are uh, governance agnostic. So we work with some big districts that are very innovative and in trying to do new things, or even in some cases, launching new schools because their enrollment is growing. We work with some independent and Catholic schools and religious schools. Um, And then a majority of our schools are obviously in the charter space, mostly because they have a lot of the flexibility that it requires. I've worked in districts. I've worked in charters. There's this sort of unholy war going on right now between teachers unions and charter schools. and, And I think we're missing the bigger picture, which is great schools should be thriving. Bad quality schools should be closed or transformed. And we need to get over a little bit all this battle of what kind of governance structure they have. I'm a firm believer that parents deserve choice. And if a parent is rich, they have choice by where they move to or if they send their kids to a private school. You hear that story all the time. And nobody uh, begrudges that parent because they feel like, well, it's their money. But if a parent doesn't have resources, they're often stuck in many cases with a pretty bad local option and no alternative. And we don't think that's right. We think if those parents come together and find some educators that they really believe in, and they want to open a school that can meet all the rigorous criteria that it takes to open a school, that they should have that right as long as the school performs. And if the school doesn't perform, it should be closed down. 
And closing schools is brutally hard and nobody likes it. But we think some of that natural churn where great schools are thriving and growing and less good schools are closing replicates more parts of our broader economy. Um, and you have to do it carefully. And you have to really think about those families and the impact. But we think that's a, a force for positive growth. And there's some real data to support this, that in communities where there's a thriving, strong charter sector, both the charters and the traditional public schools are getting better. Um, and Boston is one of those examples where there's a big research base to talk about that. So you talked about how you hand out money in tranches based on does a school hit criteria. The way we measure students is testing. Uh, are there other criteria and how is that not subjective? You know, Scott, you're hitting one of the biggest, most challenging sec problems in the education sector right now, which is what does success look like? And education is complicated because you have multiple constituents. Are you trying to please the government who's giving you the funding? Are you trying to please the parents? Are you trying to please the kid? Are you trying to please the teacher? And the answer is you kind of have to do all of the above. All those constituents matter. Um, I do believe the test scores are a strong indication. Some people have, are ready to get rid of all state tests. I feel like there's nothing on those tests that I don't want my own kids to know. So there's nothing on that test I don't want kids who I teach or kids I've worked with to know. And if you ask most families, including a lot of times people will say, well, you know, these tests aren't fair to people of color or to low-income families. We talk to those families a lot. We work with a lot of parent groups who work with their families. They want their kids to be able to thrive on those tests. Now, the elements of state testing that is maybe has racial tinge to it or that is biased, we do need to fix, full stop. But I want those test scores to reflect the kids are learning. But I also don't think it's enough. So I think, you know, the measures that other people are experimenting with right now are some secondary measures like, can you use attendance rates as a proxy for whether kids are happy in coming to school? Can you use suspension rates as a proxy for whether schools have a positive culture versus reliance on discipline? Um, obviously, the really good measures are things like uh, college attendance rates or, you know, college acceptance rates. But that's hard if you're measuring an elementary school. That's pretty far downstream. Um, even SAT and ACT is a pretty good proxy for the overall academic quality. But then there's some like student surveys that have now become pretty rigorously tested across the country. I don't want anyone to say, hey, I made a measure. Here's my internal measure. I don't really trust things that don't have some external validation. But there's now some good measures that if you give these out to kids and parents and measure their satisfaction, their sense of belonging, their hopefulness, their optimism, those are things that are just as important as reading and math skills. So we really believe in like a balanced approach to this, but it's hard until the states start to recognize this, until you build some of this into the accountability, because what gets measured is what people work on. So right now you're strongly incented Correct. to bring yes. up math people, and ELA you know, scores, maybe yes. less so to pay attention to kids' social, emotional, and how they're doing. And especially post-pandemic, we know kids have been struggling. They don't feel a sense of belonging. They don't yet feel reconnected to their schools and their communities. And, you know, two years in the life of a teenager, that's a long period of time, let alone a second grader who's really never had traditional schooling in their whole life. So we think this is a good time to look at some multiple measures of success. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. 
CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So why not just send the money? Uh, you know, there's if there's an underfunded school and a well-funded school, and I know nothing else about them other than those two facts, I can already tell you which school is likely to have the better test results. So why not just send money and say, do what you want with it, good luck? I spend a lot of time thinking about this type of question, and I think there's two approaches to this work. One to me feels more like charity, and the other to me feels a little more strategic. Charity is still important. You could say any low-income school needs more resources and feel justified in writing a personal check or a government check to that school. And if you really want to see that dollar turn into better outcomes for kids, I'm of the belief, especially if you have a limited amount of money, which you know every foundation does, it's not like the government where you just simply have huge vats of resources. I firmly believe that getting clear on how the money is going to be used and doing some partnership with them increases the likelihood that that money is going to yield the results that you want. I think about um, you know sitting down with a school leader and you say, well, you know, what was your funding back in 2011? And in California, you get about seven, 7,500 per kid. And then you say, well, what's that funding in 2022? That number is much higher in a place like California now. It's 10, 11, 12, 14,000, depending on your district and the demographics of the kids you serve. So we've almost doubled in some cases the funding, but we haven't seen a doubling of the quality. And so you say, well, why is that? And there's lots of theories, but you know, A, the cost of labor has gone up. So some of that money just gets absorbed into you know, the cost of labor. But also a lot of these schools don't have the flexibilities or the capacity to figure out what you would do with more money. And I'm sad to say that I think the federal stimulus money in education, it's done a great job of keeping schools open and giving people a little bit of breathing room, which after these last two years, that alone is a success. But given the scale of how much money it was, I actually think we would have been much better off saying, let's take that money and spread it out over a three or four year period and give either unrestricted grants to schools where they just sort of make a plan and that plan gets vetted or some form of, I don't want to say a competition because the problem is when you start doing grants, and people have to apply to them in written formats, the schools with more resources are better positioned to go after those grants. But I think it really comes down to when I talk to a principal and I say to them, you know, what do you most need to turn around your school? The clearer their answer is, the more likely I am to be like, this is a a principal I want to bet on. And then I say, do you have the capacity to do those things? And they say, yes, we've set this up and that up. 
And then you talk to some other principals or even superintendents. You say, what do you need? And they go, oh, we don't even know. We just need more people. Well, if you had more money, well, I can't really get my teachers to stay for training because we don't have PD time. And you start to realize you don't have the fundamental building blocks to make more money equal more success. And that's not their fault. That's the system they've been accustomed to. And I often joke that, you know, you can take a smart, young, you know, motivated, crispy little, I call them like a little cucumber. And they say, I'm never going to turn into a pickle. But if you drop that cucumber into pickling juice, they become a pickle, right? That's just what happens. And some of these bureaucratic um, sort of stuck systems are pickling juice. And they take very good people who are very hardworking and very well-meaning, and they lower their belief in what's possible for kids they lower their belief in what's possible amongst adults. And you just sort of get a dysfunctional culture. And I will be fully honest to say, I don't know how to fix that problem yet. So why I'm not. I, I think it's, I think it's particularly, that. particularly tough in education. Uh, you know, that kind of aggression to the mean, uh, but we see this in other things. We see it in healthcare. Uh, airlines could certainly be run better. I mean, every person that starts a new airline says, I am going to be so different. And then it just ends up being another airline. Uh, it happens in television news. You know, people come in and say, let's rethink the way that we present television news. And about six months in, they go back to just the same thing. And it doesn't matter what city you're in. All TV news looks sort of the same. One of the, the things I think about sometimes is the moon launch of the 1960s and how much they accomplished in the space of about 10 years because nobody had ever done it before. And now you compare it to the very hardworking men and women of NASA these days who are trying to go back to the moon and it's delay after delay and budget overrun over budget overrun. And sometimes I wonder how much of that is just the, the, the inertia of the, of the organization just pulling them back. You know, I've thought about the same analogy and I've also thought about how it compares to like, you know, we just put the Mars rover up on Mars and it's collecting data. And I don't remember my math, but I think Mars is about 40 times as far away as the moon is. Um, so you think on one hand, what an incredible accomplishment from, you know, the last 50 years to get 40 times the distance and have a rover there. When we started Silicon Schools, we very much were inspired by that vision of like, think big, make each school its own rocket ship. And we assumed that one rocket ship launch would be successful and then it would teach the next school and that one would go further and that one would go further. And that we would essentially be nonstop sending kids, you know, into the stratosphere. And I think we underestimated the forces of gravity. And in education, those forces of gravity are things like expectations of teachers, expectations of parents, what school is supposed to be like, what kids expect schools to be like. In the case of a charter school, you have an authorizer, which is often the district or the state saying you are or aren't allowed to do that. And you can bring these big, bold, audacious ideas. And someone says, yeah, but how are you going to get the A through G classes required for college admission? How are you going to make sure you have the number of instructional minutes? How do you make sure you have line of sight? And pretty soon by just putting all these constraints on, you force them back into the exact same box we've always yeah. had, which is, I think, yeah. why five o'clock news looks the same in every market in America, to your example. Um, so we do think that the key is to get enough freedom and autonomy for educators, especially educators who have a track record of success and have some big, bold ideas to try some new things, to thoughtfully innovate. And we sort of think of these as labs of innovation, and we've now built 75 of them. Can you give me a concrete example of an innovation from one of your schools? Definitely. I'll tell you a couple stories briefly. So um, there's a set of schools called the Summit Public Schools, which a lot of people may have heard of. 
they had been running great schools focused on sort of traditional college prep. And they were looking at these graduates who they were incredibly close to, who had worked really hard to get through high school and not seeing them succeed at the rates they wanted to in college. And that was breaking the heart of the staff who had worked like you know fingers to the bone to get them there. And they looked back and said, a lot of it is just like they get to college and they don't have the right math preparation and they're missing some of these sort of core skills and they may not have learned how to really work hard enough through persistence on their own. And my theory is that you know too many of these teachers pulled the kids along to the finish line, which we're all tempted to do as a teacher, versus realizing, no, the finish line is just the starting line. Our, line is to get, our job is to get them there on their own so they can thrive when they're gone. So Summit went back to the drawing board and they built this big experiment around what's a better way to teach math in our school. And the more they played with it, they started coming up with some combination of use the teacher for more small group instruction and let the kids learn some of the core work by themselves through some technology. And then just play with the ratio, how much time independently, small group, and over one, two, three school years of iteration, they expanded this to not just math, but to a whole platform. Um, And they built a new way of running their school that was much more about teachers doing one-on-one check-ins, students setting individual goals, and it was working and people were really excited. But they realized it was too big of a jump that they had gone through in three years for another school just to replicate it. So they started to build some software and to figure out a new like operating system for the school that would make it easier for teachers in other places to load the content they wanted to and use some of these tools. And then they built a little training arm. And there's an organization now called Gradient Learning, which is a nonprofit that spun out of Summit that has replicated this, I think, like over 300 schools across America. Now, that's an example of just sort of like an outside success of replication. And then you can go very different and very small. We work with a school called Redbridge here in San Francisco. It's about a three-year-old school serving the littles. You know, it's an elementary school. And their theory was lots of people are working on agency for kids in middle and high school, getting them to be more in charge of their own learning. But why do we think the kindergarten and first and second graders can't do that? If anything, if you have kids who've gone through Montessori preschool, you can see them doing it at age three, four, five. It's nothing about six-year-olds that suddenly means they lose their agency. It's just we've always assumed kindergartners sat on their circles, looked up at their teachers, and repeated what the teacher said. So Redbridge set out to do it very differently. And they have flexible blocks throughout the day where kids are assessing themselves on what they need to do. They have deliberate practice time where kids sit and focus on a skill they're working on. And in fact, there's a very clear sequence of what kids need to do to be promoted to the next independence level, which is roughly equivalent to grade level. And these kindergartners come in and self-advocate and say, I'm ready because I've met all these goals. And if so, they go through a process and they don't all make it the first try. Sometimes it takes two or even three tries. But when they do, the sense of pride and agency that they have, that I've done all the things required of me. And if you have that at six, I would argue that's an even more important life skill than just being good at reading and math would be. And now we have a set of other schools that are so interested in this model that they're going to try to replicate this within their own systems, including an entire district in sort of the central part of California that we'll be uh, probably providing some grant funding to to help try to replicate it. So there's lots of these examples out there that just show when you have adults oriented around this goal with the orientation towards give kids freedom with accountability, freedom with feedback, that we can actually do better than the old model of, I stand at the chalkboard and lecture to 27 kids using, you know, a standard direct instruction approach. So those are examples of successes. But if you are going to do these sorts of, I mean, we would, in, in, in software or hardware, we'd say rapid prototyping, right? You're going to risk failure. If you try something new, some of it's not going to work. 
And these are children. So if you rethink third grade and you completely fail at a one particular way of doing it, then you say to third graders, well, <laughs> sorry, your third grade didn't go all that well. We're going to try something else. I mean, Scott, you're exactly right. How do you get innovation when you don't have lab rats, right? What do you do to test new drugs if you can't test it? Now, some people would argue you shouldn't be testing on rats, but I'd say that's better than testing on humans, right? And we don't have that in education. So we have a choice we can make. We can either say the presumed old way of doing things is the only thing we're going to do because we're afraid of taking any risks. Or you can say we're going to accept some risk of failure, try to bound that risk, and be very quick in studying and evaluating and seeing it. And I would tell people that the biggest hamper to education improvement right now, the biggest dampening effect to innovation, is that people presume the old way of doing things is way better than it is. And if you go and sit in, particularly in more low-income communities, urban and rural settings, and watch at any grade level what the average classroom looks like, and how little time a day kids are in there, what they call a zone of proximal development, the right spot for them, their sweet spot for learning, and how little, even just a kid speaks in the course of a day. You mic the average American kid and just count the number of words they utter during class time, you would be shocked at how passive, boring, and unengaged the education system can be. Not every teacher, but can be for way too many kids. And sadly, how high that is for particularly kids of color and low-income kids who are clustered in schools that often aren't working. And that doesn't mean that you, know, you can try anything with them. We are not fans of wild innovation. But to go into those settings and saying, we have a thoughtful, measured approach to test something out that we think will create better results and that parents and kids have a choice to opt into, I'm fully in favor with the amount of risk involved there for the potential upside of these much better models. And let's be clear, we don't need every school to be experimenting. We don't need every classroom to be experimenting. But some of our best educators and some of our best schools being very thoughtful about trying to solve a problem that they have identified. We often say they've seen a problem they can't unsee and they're spending day and night thinking about this problem. We want them to have the freedom to try some new things. And if it doesn't work, shut it down. We don't have to go the whole of third grade. And it's not like we have to devote everything we have to do in math. But I'll tell you a very specific story. We had a set of schools that were wildly successful by all traditional measures down in Gilroy and Hollister, which is like an hour south of San Jose, give or take. Very rural community, the garlic capital of America. And they had this very engaged, interactive, kids on computers, kids chanting and singing that was really working for elementary school students. And by the time they got into middle school, and one of the highest performing schools in the state, the guy that got into middle school, they said, like, we're noticing that the kids aren't as motivated. They're rolling their eyes. They don't want to do the same things that they did in elementary school now that they're middle schools. And they realized it wasn't a developmentally appropriate approach anymore. So they literally started over and said, well, what's most important? And through a lot of trial and error, they landed on kids are really ready to learn from their peers. And they rebuilt their model around a peer-based learning model. They call it squads, where the teacher is giving very clear instruction on a daily and weekly basis about what each pod needs to do. And that squad of kids rotates leadership role and the teacher's role is completely different. And they're sort of going from squad to squad to squad, but the kids are truly teaching each other and collaborating, and they're getting even more success than they had under the old model, and the kids are liking it. Because what middle schooler doesn't want to spend more time with their peers and would rather not sit and listen and lecture to a teacher all day long? Teachers are part of the friction. I'm not going to say problem, uh, and there are obviously wonderful, hardworking teachers out there, but there's no question that if teachers are the main touch point of education, 
that they are part of the problem? I think of it as we can't rely on just the individual training and quality of each teacher to be the solution to whether our schools are good or not, because we're going to have way too much variability and there will be some teachers who aren't up to snuff. And I will tell you, teaching is one of the hardest jobs in the world to do well. It's actually a pretty easy job to do badly. If you want to just come in and trade relationship for rigor and hang out with kids, it can be a pretty fun, easy job. But for the teachers who care, which I think is the vast majority of teachers, I'm just telling you, having done it myself for years, it is brutally hard to get up and physically perform a, a play for seven hours a day, like the stress on your voice and on your energy level. And then you go home that night and you have to read all the reviews of your critics and then write the next day's play and get over and do it again and do that five days in a row. It is exhausting. And teachers get very little time to do anything other than perform all day long. They maybe get an hour of prep a day. And the good teachers are staying late on their own dime, basically, to plan the next day to get their room set up. It is unfair how much we ask of our teachers. And yet, because that's the world they've been um, you know, put into, and because they have administrators who come and go and new fads come and go, they have built up actually a very healthy scar tissue to resist all these new ideas. And they look at the shiny young new administrator or the shiny new idea, and they say, I've been through this four times before. I will outlast this. And that becomes this culture that is the problem that you're talking about. It's where the teachers, and frankly, sometimes the teachers' unions, can become so self-protective that they miss the core reason we all do this work, which is to help kids have this thriving future. So I do think you're right in identifying the problem. I think it's important to remember the cause of that and to think that a lot of the solution is to actually make teachers' lives easier. And I will say with these models that we're experimenting with and the schools that we're working with, the majority of them have teachers that are more satisfied and feel more efficacious and more success in what they do. And if you say to a teacher, would you rather lecture all day and deal with discipline and run your classroom in the traditional command and control way or set up your classroom so maybe there's rotations where you have fewer kids at a time and then some of the kids are productively struggling and engaging with really good software at their right level and then other kids are doing group work and you get to spend more time you know, working on the stuff that only teachers can do, which is the inspiration, the diagnosis, the problem solving. Like we know one-on-one -on -one tutoring works. It's just really hard if there's 25 of them and one of me. But if I can get that number smaller and smaller and even rethink the day, like there's just no reason that everyone should be taking five periods of the exact same amount of time for the exact same course. If I'm really strong in math, I might be able to do that in half the time. And if I'm a struggling reader, I might need twice as much time but our current system of sort of the factory model doesn't give that kind of latitude. Nor can you just say, well, hey, every kid just go and get whatever you want all day long because then it's chaos. So we think of it as like a great architect walks into a big space and says, these are the load-bearing walls. Don't take them down. We need those to keep this place functioning. But all these are cosmetic. Let's take those down and open up the space and give more freedom of movement. And that's kind of what we're trying to do with student schedules, with blocks without, throughout the day in the school, even the physical space of campuses looks very different in a model like this than the traditional conveyor belt, have the kids go in and out of these little block rooms and get direct instruction all day long. When Google tries something new, you know, they'll A-B test something. And of course, they've got scale so they can get huge numbers very quickly. You can't do this sort of, you can't measure the progress in education quickly. I, you know, at least a school year, if not the entire elementary school career of a child before you really know what worked and what didn't, right? 
Yeah, I mean, that's the hardest part about educational research is one, you, it's very hard to have a true like double-blind study. There are a few examples of this where there's some natural ones that have occurred and people have learned a lot from them. Um, and two, you're right, the, the time frame of changing education is frustrating. It's frustrating to donors, it's frustrating to policymakers, it's frustrating to teachers. And oftentimes people will say, well, you know, we've been doing this ed reform new models for 10, 20, 30 years. Why haven't we solved it yet? And I'm just humbled by anything that is a truly human problem. It's not just like an algorithm. You can write a piece of code that can scale to the whole world in a matter of months if it's you know, popular and good enough. But human change takes a long time. And the same way all of our problems in the prison systems aren't going to be solved by some magical algorithm. Those are human beings in tough conditions trying to make the better cultural decisions. And, you know, I'm 48 years old. I've been doing this work for about 26 years. And I'm convinced that I will die not having solved these problems. And that's a hard thing to say when you put your life's work into it. But I don't have to solve the problem. I have to move down the line towards success. I can be three links in a long chain and then hand off to the next motivated person who wants to take some of this work. And for those folks who say, never mind, it's too long, I would just say this. You have a choice. You can either do the hard, decades-long, billion-dollar work of making education more equitable and better for everybody, or you can have a non-functioning democracy. It's one or the other. Because we can't allow only the wealthy or only those with privilege or possibility or choices to have access to a great education and then claim, oh, hey, it's a meritocracy level playing field. The whole idea of the American experiment and the American dream is we all have a fairly equal first chance and then we let the meritocracy kick in. And I think most of us would agree we haven't lived up to that and the work in education is all about that. So do you wanna wait 50 years and spend all this money or do you wanna have a failed democracy? That's the choice I see and that's why I keep doing this work despite how challenging it sometimes feels. Brian Greenberg, former teacher, former principal, and now CEO of Silicon Schools Fund. Sand Hill Road is produced by Sean Myers under the leadership of Sarah Bueno and Stephanie Adruni. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. That's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes at at PressHereTV.com.